This episode of The Dig is sponsored by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by University of California Press. One title that I think listeners might find interesting is A Half Century of Occupation, Israel-Palestine and the World's Most Intractable Conflict by Gershon Shafir. Israel's occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem turned a half century old this month. Shafir's essay collection asks three questions. What is the occupation? Why has it lasted so long? And how has it transformed the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? He explains how the occupation became what it has become and where it is likely headed, pointing to the paradoxes, legal inconsistencies, and conflicting interests that have weakened the occupier's hold and leave the occupation vulnerable to challenge. A Half Century of Occupation, Israel-Palestine and the World's Most Intractable Conflict, by Gershon Shafir, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Ironically, Donald Trump won the presidency in significant part by pledging to do something that his predecessors had already done a great deal towards accomplishing, building a big, beautiful wall on the border with Mexico. For liberals and centrists, the wall now shares a toxic association with the Trump brand. It is now correctly perceived by many to be far-right, white nationalist xenophobia at its worst. But until recently, militarizing the border with Mexico was accepted as a core piece of the common-sense, bipartisan establishment immigration and drug policy agenda. In 1992, there were more than 4,000 Border Patrol agents. Today, there are roughly 20,000. Until the early 90s, crossing the border without authorization was simple. Basically, you just walked across near urban areas like El Paso and San Diego. But In the decades since, unprecedented border militarization, including hundreds of miles of fencing, has forced migrants across the Arizona border, where desert conditions have killed thousands. The border is more militarized than ever before, far, far more, yet many Americans feel more emphatically than ever that it is dangerously unsecured. That belief was successfully exploited and propagated by Donald Trump, but has its roots in bipartisan immigration and border policy. Today, my guest is Peter Andreas, a professor at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, which is where we recorded this interview. He is the author of the seminal book, Border Games, Policing the U.S.-Mexico Divide. It was first published in 2000, with a second edition issued in 2009. Obviously, it's far from new, but it's still the best book I've encountered on how the border became a war zone, which, unfortunately, is still quite relevant today. His book has also been critical in developing my own thinking for the book on immigration that I'm currently writing for Verso. Most recently, Andreas is the author of Rebel Mother, My Childhood Chasing the Revolution, a book about his childhood traveling Latin America with his revolutionary mother. I haven't had a chance to read that book yet, but unsurprisingly, it has received excellent reviews, and we'll chat about it as well. Peter Andreas, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. The border is more militarized than ever before, yet 
perhaps more Americans than ever before feel more passionately than ever that the border is dangerously insecure and as a result elected Donald Trump president. What's going on? Yeah, there is this uh, striking historical amnesia. Um, the border is now more policed, guarded, patrolled, monitored, surveilled, regulated, probably than any time uh, by far, by any time in America's history. Um, this began, the real buildup began in the early 90s and has continued um, rapidly ever since. But um, what's interesting is a large perception is that it's a chaotic, wide open, lawless land. And there certainly is a lot of lawlessness and a lot of smuggling and illicit activities across the border. But from a historical perspective, what's really new and different is actually the amount of policing that's that's gone on over the last couple of decades. You know, Trump, you mentioned um, Donald Trump, the favorite rallying cry at his, mar- at his um, rallies was, you know, build that wall. That I mean, big, beautiful lot, you know, wall. Big, beautiful wall. Uh, you know, he, he was elected for many reasons, and there's, you know, it's complicated, but it's striking that if you had to pick one thing that people chanted at his uh, rallies, other than maybe lock her up, uh, <laughs> was build that wall. And I wouldn't even be surprised if, if build that wall was even a bigger chant than, than lock her up. Yeah, it's really re- remarkable um, that that was the kind of central chant demand of the Trump campaign um, and has now, for Trump's opponents, uh, border militarization and the wall has become one of the most salient symbols of right-wing, xenophobic, bigoted nationalism. Um, Yet, in a sense, the wall, to a certain extent, is is already built. There are hundreds of miles of fencing, and it was border militarization and and fencing and walls was a pretty accepted part of bipartisan immigration border policy for the last few decades. Well, what's interesting is you you said fencing is walls accepted policy across the the political divide, but in some ways the language matters because um, what there was agreement on and people were scrambling to, you know, propose, propose more of it, which is, you know, fencing. But they shied away from actually calling it a wall. Uh, Pat Buchanan in the 90s uh, ran as a Republican saying he wanted to build a wall. In 92. In, in 92, and, and I think again in, in 96. And um, uh, Republicans shied away from him. They thought he was too hardcore, too extremist, so they kind of you know, treated him as some kind of fringe character. He said he wanted to build a wall and keep out drugs and migrants with the wall. And it was his sort of his, his, his term and people ran from it. But now several decades later, Trump has totally embraced it. And it's a new political era, um, post nine 11. Um, not a lot of memories of, of those early debates with Pat Buchanan. And, um, uh, he's been embraced in, in a lot of quarters for it. But you're right, the opposition also, you know, n- no wall, right, has been the, a, a rallying cry. And, and so far, um, he hasn't been able to build his big, beautiful wall. But as you put it, a lot of it's already built. It's just not called a wall. I mean, hundreds of miles, maybe over 600 miles of fencing currently um, 
exist along the border. And it's not as if Trump actually was proposing a 2,000-mile-long wall. Um, I think his his team immediately or pretty pretty soon after proposing it, you know, acknowledged that a lot of the terrain wouldn't allow for a, a wall. And obviously, you're not going to wall off the border ports of entry, which, you know, would wall off one of our most important trade partners. Uh, so, yeah, the, 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 the infrastructure is already partly in place. It's just that he's been the first person who's, who's actually wants to call it a wall and has done so proudly. So going back to the late 80s, early 90s, um, let's start with the politics and then move to the policies of what those politics put in place in terms of uh, escalating border security. Why and how did border security become the site of so much intense political drama in that moment? Some of it is very local politics. I mean, it's a, it's a national issue. But in the early 90s, Governor Pete Wilson in California, he basically ran on a um, get tough on an unauthorized uh, immigration from Mexico and turned out he struck a chord. It was California was in a, in a recession. It was tough times right after the Cold War. The defense industry in Southern California was reeling. Uh, and Proposition 187 emerged out of California. Uh, and um, he cleverly showed footage that the Border Patrol had provided him <laughs> of migrants dashing across the border, uh, you know, wide open, uh, into traffic. Um, uh, it was just sort of the images were just of a completely out of control, chaotic port of entry. And um, he played that up and um, partly won re-election on that. The federal government, in a sense, California and other local circumstances like in El Paso, you know, they put it on the agenda for Washington and then Washington responded uh, by an influx of more fences, more manpower, more stadium lighting, and so on uh, to, to basically... Um, take back the debate over the, over the border. I mean, it was, it, was, it was almost an embarrassment for the federal government, and then they sort of cracked down and said, look what we're doing to secure the border. And ironically, these images of people um, near San Diego mm-hmm. running across the highway, that was actually a re- result of one of the early border enforcement yes, measures. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, some of the first fencing that went up was um, the first 14 miles uh, the westernmost first 14 miles of, of the border started to erect a fence. And so this was an area where migrants previously um, were fairly easily coming and going, including going, I mean, back and forth, almost as sort of cross-border commuters, if you will. And once that fencing went up and they started, you know, patrolling more, um, that actually drove migrants to dash across the port of entry itself, which was... Um, uh, 14 miles in, and that's the footage that uh, Pete Wilson used, was those migrants uh, running right through the port of entry. Uh, so you're absolutely right. And that, if I'm not mistaken, that initial fencing uh, was justified and used as an anti-drug effort 
rather than in immigration control. I think it had it was funded by and and justified as an anti anti drug initiative. In fact, in the fencing itself, as I recall, were basically recycled, you know, landing mats from military landing mats from Vietnam. Uh, and other military conflicts. And so it gave no, new meaning to the word recycling. It was kind of a Cold War recycling of old leftover Cold War stuff. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't a formidable uh, fence, but it shifted the traffic um, and it had political consequences. And this is something that happens again and again in the pro- as border enforcement escalates again and again throughout the 90s right. and 2000s. You write, is that it... Uh, produces situations that then call out for seem to call out for and justify yet more border enforcement there's a self there was a kind of self-reinforcing built-in escalatory dynamic uh you could almost call it a, a border version of nimby not in my backyard so you know you push the migrant flow from one place to another and then local communities in, in the in the new area where we're not accustomed to migrants crossing would be in an uproar, and then the federal government would put in some border patrol agents there, and then it would push it somewhere else. And so suddenly, uh, uh, it's not California, but it's Arizona, which is the you know um, epicenter of 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 the migrant traffic across the border. And um, so, although California border in a in a sense was um, uh, uh, you know secured. Uh, the overall uh, migrant flows uh, during that period, if anything, were, were, were going up. And the, this shifting of, of, of migration from m- near major ports of entry into the Arizona desert had right. uh, enormous consequence for the migrants themselves. Oh, sure. I mean, this is, this is a you know, disaster uh, and a tragedy in terms of literally pushing people into harsh and dangerous terrain where um, if they were to continue doing what they're trying to do, which is entering the United States, um, some of them would, would, would perish. And what's interesting is that the, it was called the INS, Immigration Naturalization Service, which was then folded in the Department of Homeland Security uh, shortly after 9-11. Um, INS officials were on record as saying that they thought that that terrain would be a deterrent, that, that they thought that migrants, um, that that would be a natural uh, fence, if you will. But it proved not to be the case, obviously. Instead, um, they braved the dangers. And importantly, they also um, relied more and more on professional um, migrant smugglers. Uh, so before crossing the border, you know, you could self-smuggle, uh, take yourself across, uh, didn't have to hire anyone necessarily. Uh, more of a luxury than a necessity. And people would, uh, in between, let's say, downtown El Paso and Juarez, would talk about crossing by the river uh, to get to work in El Paso and then crossing yeah. back uh, through the port of entry back into Mexico at night. Think about it as, as unauthorized commuters. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was that simple, that easy, and well established. that visible, that well-established, tolerated for a very long time, frankly. Uh, and once the dynamic change because of an effort to, to crack down, suddenly, you know, migrant smugglers who'd been there for a long time, their business just boomed and they could charge more uh, and the migrants were more dependent on them. 
um, so that the relate so that so the migrant was not only uh, at risk by the environment, meaning you know mountains and terrain and and heat and cold, but also their lives were also put in the hands of of professional smugglers in a way that wasn't true before. And this is all taking place at the the border is getting harder for for regular people for for labor for migrants at the very same time. Um, that it's opening wide to commodities and capital under NAFTA. I take it that that's not a coincidence. This is a Na- you know the NAFTA paradox. I mean you know simultaneous schizophrenic, you know double move simultaneously, rushing to secure the border, control the border, close the border, uh, make it much less uh, penetrable, uh, harder to cross, and simultaneously embracing ideas of free trade, economic integration, uh, closer relationships, uh, and so on and so forth, and it'd be the same policymakers, the same officials um, speaking about about both at the same time. And, you know, President uh, Salinas of Mexico, even at one point, tied the two together by saying um, his effort, you know, one of his lines for promoting NAFTA before it was passed, I think it was 93, he said, we, Mexico, we, we want to um, export tomatoes, not tomato pickers, he said. And so basically telling Americans, if you pass NAFTA, um, it'll, it'll help you secure the border. And uh, U.S. officials like that line, too. They basically said, they actually are on record saying NAFTA will help us secure the border. Frankly, it's complicated, but if anything, in the short term, um, liberalization of Mexico's economy was very disruptive, and a lot of um, uh, Mexican peasants in, in poor rural communities were displaced, moved to the cities, and then some of them end up because of the liberalization, liberalization of agriculture, exactly, and some of them end up uh, then crossing into into the United States. Um, it's a complicated story, but at least in the short and medium term. NAFTA certainly did not help secure the border. And do you feel like the one of the political motives or at least causes of escalating border enforcement was to convince Americans who were feeling ever more vulnerable to the vicissitudes of global capitalism with mm-hmm. the opening of the border that indeed national sovereignty was intact, that they were going to crack down on both unauthorized migrants and illicit drugs? You know, you can think of it in sort of that sort of grand strategy or or big picture. I think, you know, there may be some of that, but the the reality was sort of more of a short-term crisis management political strategy of restoring an image of order on the border because the federal government was embarrassed by what, you know, was happening um, in Southern California, local politicians were making a big issue out of it, and so they felt like they had to do something to make it at least appear that the border was more secure and that they were taking control. Um, and what they did essentially in the in the short term was by moving populations away from heavily populated areas, the urban areas, they kind of moved it farther away, out of sight, more out of mind. Um, but because of the escalatory dynamic described, it actually just kept building up as opposed to reaching some kind of equilibrium. Uh, because frankly, if you just look at the numbers, um, the border buildup, you know, continued um, 
through the 90s. And then, so the size of the Border Patrol doubled in the 90s and then more than doubled again um, the decade after that. And so that's where the 9-11 story also comes in, which obviously was unforeseen. Um, to what extent, though, do you think that Americans' concerns about drugs and unauthorized migrants coming into across the border in the early 90s were related to or interacted with their concerns about NAFTA, both right. those raised by unions and by right. Ross Perot and the big sucking sound. Right. It, it's hard to actually say definitively that these things are connected, but intuitively they, they are. Um, a sort of sense of, of insecurity, um, getting closer to, to Mexico, jobs being lost, um, uh, economies integrated, uh, much, much heightened sense of, of, of economic vulnerability and insecurity. And so there is a sort of comfort uh, of feeling like, well, the border's now being uh, uh, more secured to keep out those, those things that, you know, Americans were increasingly agreeing were, were bad things, and they, they originate out from out there. Um, so, yes, it was, it was primarily uh, the twin unofficial exports of Mexico, drugs and, and, and people. It, um, I think tell, it's, it's very telling that a lot of right-wing anti-NAFTA sentiment involves this conspiracy theory of the North American Union. Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah this, yeah, yeah, this idea that that actually NAFTA is just the first step in basically ending U.S. sovereignty and creating right. an, a North America-wide government, somewhat akin to the EU. Yeah, no, um, I I can totally see how uh, certain voices uh, in America would basically see anything resembling NAFTA as a Europeanization, which it actually is is far from, but anything that that that, that institutionalizes economic integration in a way that NAFTA did with Canada, U.S., and Mexico um, undermines. Um, our ability to act unilaterally and independently. Yeah, it's it, it it is funny though. It's not at all what the what the right wing would suggest that it is. It's like the very worst facets of the e, EU and um, sure, absolutely uh, with none of the g good facets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, the the key argument of your book, which I think is is really important and well made, is and I'm going to quote from your book here, is that the escalation of border policing has ultimately been less about deterring the flow of drugs and migrants than about recrafting the image of the border and symbolically reaffirming the state's territorial authority. So you argue that the border, that border enforcement is a political enforcement, uh, sorry, <laughs> you argue that border enforcement is a political performance that's not really aligned with affecting any sort of concrete outcomes in terms of deterring unauthorized immigration or illegal drugs. Um, if it's a performance, what what is the performance? Right. Who is the intended audience? Right. And what are the performers trying to convey? Yeah, I mean, that book, you know, which now is in some ways somewhat dated, but re more relevant than ever at the same time, um, I, you know, the title we came up with was, was Border Games. And I liked the title, and the title worked. Um, I was a little reluctant about it, too, though, because... It suggested a kind of, I don't know, 
belittling of the seriousness of, of, of the drama and trauma. And something uh, that's so life and on death. The, on, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I stuck with it partly because there was something very game-like in terms of you know, a theatrical performance, uh, an audience watching and cheering or booing, and the players being well aware of who's watching and, and the, the, the border, you know, almost serving as a political prop uh, and very effectively so in some ways, serving interests on, on multiple sides. And, you know, image matters. And the image of the border that had been crafted by some politicians was an out-of-control border that needed to be, you know, we need to regain control of the border. And, of course, failing to mention that the border had never in the history of that border been actually under control. So you can't really regain control of something that never was under, was under control in the first place. But there's a nostalgia over a mythical past um, that, you know, doesn't exist. But nevertheless, there's this impulse to secure something. And as the U.S. and Mexico became closer, and this gets back to your previous question about NAFTA, is a little too close for comfort for certain, some Americans anyway. And so at the very least, the political challenge was to at least craft an image of order on the border. And the first step in doing that um, was to move, you know, the most blatant, visible, uh, in-your-face images of a disorderly border and, and push those, you know, out of sight, out of mind, push them more underground um, and, and, you know, as, as you mentioned in our previous conversation, you know, some my, uh, demographers have even argued that one effect is, you know, migrants already in the U.S. with that authorization, who used to go back and forth all the time, now actually had more of an incentive to stay in the U.S., right? Because uh, it was hard across the border, but actually that outcome contributes to the image of a more orderly border. Right? So they're no longer going back and forth. They're actually staying put more permanently in the U.S. That's actually not a stated goal of the policy, right, is to create more permanent unauthorized migration in the U.S. But previously, you could go back and forth fairly easily. Now you go back and forth less often. The border actually appears more orderly. This episode of The Dig is sponsored by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by the University of California Press. One title I think listeners might find interesting is Caravan of Martyrs, Sacrifice and Suicide Bombing in Afghanistan by David B. Edwards. What compels a person to strap a vest loaded with explosives onto his body and blow himself up? The answer is found not in the pathology of the terrorist mind or brainwashing, Edwards argues, but in cultural beliefs and ritual practices associated with sacrifice. Historically, the sacrificial killing of a sheep demonstrated a tribe's desire for peace. After the Soviet invasion of 1979, widespread killing gave sacrifice new meanings. The dead were venerated as martyrs, which became the foundation for a cult of martyrs exploited by political leaders for their own advantage, setting in motion a mutation that would lead 19 Arabs who had received their training in Afghanistan to hijack airplanes on September 11th and that would transform what began as a cult of martyrs created by a small group of Afghan jihadis into the transnational scattering of suicide bombers that haunts our world today. Caravan of Martyrs, Sacrifice and Suicide Bombing in Afghanistan 
by David B. Edwards. Out now from University of California Press. Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but the Dig and Dan Denver are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, To support this show, go to patreon.com and look up The Dig. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the show. Throughout all politics in the United States and anywhere in the world, um, symbolism and performance always plays a role, obviously. Um, But it's hard to think of cases where the rhetoric... Um, and even policies are so divorced from the purported referent the or object of the policy, the, right. the, 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 the actual physical border, and mm. so divorced from a, um, any sort of uh, sp- specifically measurable outcome than it is with border policy. I mean, with with the border, uh, uh, what what outcomes do, do border patrol point to? Um, Drug seizures right. and migrant app- apprehensions, right. both um, can be used both to point to the success of the border patrol in in doing their job, and ironically, at the very same time, they can be used to they are used as as proxy measures of the size of of the number of undocumented immigrants who are making it into the country past right. them, or the number of drugs that are making their way into the country past them. Well. You know, border, you know, those tasked with the job of border enforcement, which is a difficult job, face the pressure of showing results and actually coming up with indicators showing that they're doing a good job. So, you know, every year um, they have to come up before Congress and make the case for their budgets and, and, and show that they're making progress. They never say that they're, um, that, that there's, it's been a tr- huge success. Uh, or rarely say that, but they always say have to say you know the situation's problematic, but we're making progress. So you can simultaneously say, you know, we're doing our job well, but the problem persists, and therefore we continue to need funding. Ideally, more funding to do it even better. And we're always strapped for resources. No matter how many resources you pour at the border always get the line that we need more resources. Um, so, Which is great know. for bureaucratic entrepreneurs because you're never you're always doing a great job, but the job is it's, never done and always requires absolutely. more funding. So it starts with four or five thousand border patrol agents, so then okay, let's double it. So, you know, over ten thousand. Oh, let's double that again and now they wanna hire more. It's 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 unclear actually if there's a number that says, well wh- when what number is actually um, Enough, and you're right about the the seizure and arrest numbers. For years, those have been spun in in whatever direction is 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 politically um, convenient. It's interesting about drugs, which we haven't talked about as much as the migration story. You know, seizures go up. You know, border uh, uh, interdictors basically say, "Look how many drugs we've kept off America's streets," and they have have a photo op and they burn the drugs and, and so on. And if, if seizures go down, they basically say, look, you know, fewer drugs are crossing. And But it might actually be the opposite. Maybe more drugs are crossing, but they're catching less. Similarly, when they catch more drugs, it may mean that they're doing their job 
no worse or no better than before. It's just that more drugs are crossing, and therefore they're catching more because they're just going about their their daily job, and therefore, as a percentage of what's crossing, they catch more drugs because more are coming across. What I do know is that no one denies that, you know, for quite a while now, the majority of certain drugs coming into the U.S. Um, have been crossing from Mexico. And, you know, that overall picture hasn't changed in, in quite a while. And there's an important lesson um, in the historical period just preceding the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border, which could have offered policymakers some really important lessons about the futility of what they were about to try and continue to try on the Mexican border. Um, and this is a story that um, you tell, which is that the U.S., when the U.S. successfully shut down the cocaine trafficking route from Colombia through the Caribbean to Florida, right. um, Colombian traffickers then started pushing cocaine up through Mexico. Um, and that's where drugs and the drug cartels that have unleashed such incredible bloodshed across Mexico and destabilized right. the Mexican state's authority, um, destabilized the Mexican state, that's where that comes from. Yeah, it's a, it's a story, a tragic story of unintended consequences and doing something that works in the short term, but in the medium and long term um, is is terribly uh, counterproductive and perverse, frankly. So, you know, in the, in, the, in the 1980s, the U.S. put pressure on Colombian shipments from, from Colombia to the U.S. in southern Florida. And it, it didn't shut it down, but it just from a sort of business perspective... It just created incentives for smugglers to shift away from the Caribbean and towards Mexico. It also created incentives to give up, you know, both, you know, or focus less on on water traffic and also uh, by air because the radar net was was getting more and more sophisticated. That that is a militarization story because the radar net was really a, a you know military story. Um, so it grounded the traffic. So what do you do instead? You don't you don't not export drugs to the U.S. Because the profits it's, it's pro- are it's, incredible. It's, exactly. The U.S. is the biggest drug market in the world. And so um, you shift um, uh, location and you shift the method, right? So you basically ship the stuff through Central America or directly to Mexico and then move it up by land to the United States. Uh, we're primarily talking about cocaine. So Mexico, long an exporter of marijuana and heroin to the U.S., produced in Mexico, suddenly is the primary entry point for Colombian cocaine. And so America's, you know, great success in interdicting cocaine, you know, in, in the Caribbean <clears throat> was frankly boom time for business for Mexican traffickers because suddenly Colombian exporters needed them to move their product through Mexico. And the Colombian traffickers, rather than just um, taking a fee, actually took part of the product. The, 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 the Mexican, Mexican traffickers. traffickers yeah. And they say, hey, we're going to, you know, hey, that's more profitable if we actually control the product and we're going to distribute it uh, in the U.S. as well. And, and the, meanwhile, the Colombian traffickers are on the defensive in Colombia. The U.S. is, is helping to dismantle the Medellin trafficking organization, the Cali trafficking organization. And so this is boom times for the Mexican traffickers. And um, the profits go way up. And Mexico's role in the sort of, you know, America's 
drug economy is, is, has shifted. Even though it's long been a major drug corridor of the U.S., this was something that was truly new and different. And the increasing cross-border trade under NAFTA facilitates this Absolutely. as well. You don't want to overstate it, but um, it's just made the job of border enforcement even harder when, you know, truck traffic doubles uh, and you're trying to, you know, weed out um, the needle in a haystack. And in this case, the needle is actively trying to avoid detection. And the haystack's and, getting bigger. And the haystack's getting bigger. And frankly, as much as there's talk about securing you know, the border between the ports of entry, this is where Trump wants to build his wall and, and so on. It's understood that most of the hard drugs, meaning heroin and, and, and cocaine, enter through the ports of entry, meaning in passenger vehicles and commercial cargo conveyances and, and trucks and trains and so on. And so that is the ultimate conundrum for border enforcement is that under NAFTA, but also just under you know, having good real economic real trade relations with your neighbor, you, your job is to simultaneously um, facilitate uh, uh, wanted uh, border crossings and demonstrate that you're doing your job in, in keeping unwanted uh, uh, commodities out. And so it's this uh, schizophrenia. And, and again, part of the, the political solution um, was to pour a lot more resources into not just personnel at the border, including at the ports of entry, but also technologies uh, to try to detect drugs um, and, and, and other undesirable uh, uh, commodities crossing into the U.S. Some of that actually left, you know, Cold War leftovers, uh, technologies from the CIA and, and, and the military that were previously um, not available to law enforcement and suddenly adapted uh, for law enforcement purposes. What is, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this argument, but what's your take on the um, uh, iron law of prohibition theory, the idea um, that prohibition incentivizes traffickers to transport the most potent mm. version of a drug possible because right. it becomes more the, the basically the smaller and more potent something is right. and more thus more profitable the more sense it makes to 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 smuggle that um that's one thing people have been sure we we've seen that over and over um for example during um maybe it even came from this experience alcohol prohibition in the US uh suddenly beer and wine were a lot less popular because in, under conditions of prohibition, high risk, high rewards, high, potentially high profits, but also uh, risks, obviously. Uh, all the incentives uh, were to um, uh, produce, transport, and actually even there were incentives to consume the hard stuff. Uh, you know, quickly. You're not going to sit around casually having your beer when, you know, you might get busted. Sift, uh, sipping your craft, your exactly, craft IPA. <laughs> exactly. Um, so. Uh, and why would you smuggle took, a barrel of beer right. when you could smuggle a bottle of exactly. vodka? And so the exact same logic applied to marijuana smuggling. Uh, in the Caribbean to the U.S. in the in the late 70s, so there was kind of a boom in marijuana smuggling um, 
from Colombia to the U.S. under kind of minimal enforcement environment. But as the, as the drug war ratcheted up and they started cracking down and, and creating more of an interdiction net in, in South Florida and the Caribbean, the incentives for smugglers were to switch over, either get out of the business or switch over to the hard stuff, so cocaine. Be, be, so there were incentives to basically abandon marijuana and embrace cocaine. In the case of Mexico, um, most of the drugs smuggled between the ports of entry and actually even in the tunnels, under, um, my understanding is, is marijuana. And it's the, it's the hard drugs uh, that use much more sophisticated methods of getting it across th- right through the ports of entry. And it's funny, you know, if you actually look at the um, seizure statistics, overwhelming number of seizures at the border are, are marijuana busts. And it does make them look busy, and it looks like they're doing their job. You get big old um, kilos, get old kilos of yeah. stuff you can burn, and 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 so on. Uh, but it's funny, it's, you know, it's the bulkiest of the drugs. It's it smells more than the other drugs. So the drug sniffing dogs. Um, and I I joke, you know, when I t- teach the stuff, I I joke to my students that the U.S. has practiced uh, unofficially and unintentionally a form of marijuana protectionism, because basically one of the biggest beneficiaries are U.S. marijuana producers. The easiest drug to interdict is... Oh, those armed hippies in Northern California. Yeah, exactly. Oregon, Northern California, um, wherever. I mean, it's been boom times. Uh, this is pre, pre the decriminalization and legalization trend in the U.S. I mean, boom times for U.S. marijuana production. And uh, I don't want to overstate it, but, uh, you know, they're presumably cheering on when, when Mexican dope gets interdicted. Uh, at the border, and a lot of Mexican dope has—that's the easiest drug and the biggest drug and the highest quantity drug that's that's been stopped at the border. And currently, many people are seeing a similarly perverse incentive structure at play in terms of the arrival of fentanyl, this incredibly mm. toxic synthetic. Uh, incredibly powerful synthetic opioid that's right. adulterating the heroin supply because uh, I won't have the quantities right, but why why bring in a uh, ounce of heroin when you can bring in a gram of fentanyl that's just as strong? Um, yeah, that's a particularly deadly illustration of the same dynamic we've been talking about. Um, you write that the uh, objective of this game is to tame rather the rather than inflame the passions of the spectators Mm. in terms of the performance that's going on. Um, But over the long term, the spectators, in terms of the voting public, have only grown more inflamed, at least in recent years, um, and with Trump's election. To what extent do you think that border militarization has been an efficacious performance? Did it convince Americans, at least for a time, that the border was secure? And then if that worked, why did it stop working? Yeah, I mean, you know, short-term political gain, and, and then there's sort of what happens in the long term. Most politicians are only thinking about the immediate election, uh, and bureaucrats are only thinking about the next annual report, right? And so if they can show results in the short term, um, they're not really projecting ahead what's the situation going to look like five, ten years from now as a result of what we're doing uh, uh, today. So one can argue that by making it, you know, mostly image and show and not actually addressing some of the roots of the problem um, and actually creating an escalatory dynamic uh, on, on both sides that 
actually has made it a bigger challenge um, in the long term. It's created a ripe environment for some politicians under the right circumstances to jump in and take advantage of the situation. And so suddenly you have Trump, you know, violating the rules because basically Republicans and, and, and Democrats were sort of bipartisan support for this steady buildup of, of border enforcement. Suddenly he jumps in and says, the border's wide open. We, you know, we haven't even tried border enforcement. You know, we, the drugs are flowing <laughs> across the border. Uh, it's a disgrace. And so it's sort of like, you know, rewind and we're back to the early 90s and all this buildup that's happened never happened because he's convinced people that it's the border's wide open and um so hit the restart button but as we already discussed he's he's hitting restart building on this huge infrastructure that's been created over the last couple decades yeah and he comes out with this discourse of the border being wide open at this moment where kind of concretely speaking border militarization as sort of seemingly reached its 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 maximum um like what else is there more to do i guess you could always hire more border patrol agents or build another layer of fencing where there is already one and i i guess militarization in some sense is only limited by the federal budget um you can always argue for more and it's not just in this in this policy realm it's it's not just the the border it's i mean think about the the so-called war on drugs which is an overused term at this point but you know true believers think we're just getting started that that if if only you put enough resources into it that the logic is sound you just haven't tried hard enough and so then you look at that played out concretely at the border it's like, well, you know, what is enough? What's the right number? What What is, you know, it's an extraordinary amount of money poured in by historical standards because by historical standards, not a lot was put into it. It was, an, it was a overlooked, uh, an afterthought. Uh, the INS was kind of a stepchild, neglected stepchild of the Department of Justice. Um, it's unclear what the, what the limit is now. Uh, I think... A sense of of budget constraints, frankly, is is what's driving some people to to pause uh, on this right now. Since that, yeah, I think the logic is is very similar to the war on drugs and also to the war on terror. And not uh, not coincidentally, the border is a place where all of those things are are in play. Yeah, the border, you know kind of ironic in some ways it gets all the attention or it gets much of the attention because it's a very concrete specific place you can point your finger to but itself is actually neither the source of the problem or the clear place for the solution right it's just a place it's a it's a crossing point um so you know if Economically speaking, drugs, it's supply and demand and unauthorized migration. It's, it's also about, mostly about labor markets, frankly, in, in the U.S. case. Um, but the border is the easiest thing for people to latch on politically as a sort of a concrete, that's the source um, of the problem. And to uh, project our like anxieties and also the potential solutions to whatever is causing those anxieties. Yeah, it's yeah. a border's a real place for people to live there, but for most yes. Americans, it's this kind of abstract right. 
thing. That's right. Most Americans have not seen the border, have not gone there, have not crossed the border, will not spend time there. Um, and so the construction of the border in their minds is, is, is purely done on their TV sets or, or now online and, and on headlines and, and, and so on. Um, and so it's, it's a battle of, of images. Hi, this is Dan Denver, your host, cutting into the interview to thank you for your support on Patreon.com and to ask those listeners who haven't pitched in yet to consider doing so. This podcast is now my part-time job, which is sort of crazy, but also amazing. To keep this up, though, I need your support to make it sustainable for myself and to pay my producer and cover overhead. A few dollars a month goes a long way, so please visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. We also have lots of great swag available, including from Sarah Jaffe, George Chikorell-Omar, Nicole Ashoff, Diane Ravitch, and Marie Gottschalk. Thank you again, and now back to the show. One change that I do think may have taken place in between the period that you write about in your book in the um, 90s when the border uh, enforcement is really being escalated dramatically is at that point there are really these images of the border of the people in the I can never is it San Ysidro people at the San Ysidro port of entry um, running across yep. the, the highway near near San Diego there are these actual images that sh- that sh- that purport to show the American people that the border is out of control but now that we're at this point of really seemingly although I guess perhaps not maximal border militarization the way that Trump points to the border being out of control is he doesn't actually um, really transmit or convey images of the border he mm. points more I think to the the criminal alien the criminal Mexican in the interior right. to reference back to the borders and security this rapist murdering right. Mexican in the who's already here is 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 what he uses, I think, to convey to Americans that the border is out of is insecure because it let that person in. I think you're, that's exactly right. Uh, that is an important shift. I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, basically, it's a it's a domestic law and order, public safety, security problem that he then points to the border as the quick fix. To solve. So we have a soft border, wide open border. And we have these Mexicans who he associates quite casually and easily with criminals and rapists as just coming across as if it's a super highway. And so, well, what's the solution? Well, of course, you, you shut down the highway and, and, uh, uh, and send them back, back home. And in that sense, it's become the border's become even more of an abstraction because even if the yeah. images that were being transmitted in the 1990s were incredibly misleading— um, they were, in some sense, images of, of a border. That's right. I think what's interesting is that Trump has spent relatively little time at the border, right? So, um, but I would not, I have no doubt that if he really can move ahead with a new beautiful wall construction project, he'll, he'll have a press conference at the border and behind him will be this, you know, he'll say this is, they're starting to build right now and this is going to be the solution to our problems. A big ribbon cutting. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah Trump would never, he's a developer after all. Yes. Absolutely. In fact, that, I think that's part of the reason he latched onto it was, hey, I build stuff and I do it well. And, or at and least he sells so, his I mean, name real, to things uh, he builds. Exactly. Stuff. <laughs> and so he could sort of pitch it as, hey, I can build the best wall. It'll be, it'll be cheap, too. 
it'll be the Mexicans are going to pay for this wall even, though I haven't heard that line in a while. Um, just as an aside, uh, did you see the uh, image of, uh, of Trump at the Western Wall? Yes. And someone wrote, uh, oh, who paid a, for you? The, 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 <laughs> yeah, there was I, the social media these days. Yeah. You can, you know, put... Uh, uh, what he might be thinking while he's at the Western Wall, thinking, "Wow, uh, this is this is a great wall. I wish I could have one like this." Right. Um, w- it it seems like though Trump's r- representation of border insecurity using things that are interior to the to the yeah. U.S. like criminal uh, immigrants are really also an, an outgrowth of something that's been going on from the beginning of, of, of border militarization, which is, um, which is border enforcement increasingly creeping outward mm. in terms of drug interdiction in other countries. A thickening of borders, if you will. Yeah. yeah. Like I, and, uh, or I just came back from Montreal right. and I went through a CPP checkpoint there in the Montreal airport and said, welcome to the United States of America, yes. which was weird. That's unusual, but I n- noticed that too, is the U.S.-Canadian uh, very close cooperation on these issues, and so they let U.S. have its own uh, passport inspection inside Canada. Uh, and so there's that thickening uh, outward, yes. you know, and there was just a, a um, joint inspector general report released by the state and justice departments, I believe, on a DEA Pro, uh, interdiction Honduras. program in Honduras, right. where a number of innocent right. uh, people were were, were killed, right. um, and then there's this internal thickening where if one drives across the Southwest today, not crossing any border at all, but going from point A to point B, going about one's daily life in the United right. States, yes. one is stopped at a border patrol checkpoint and asked by a federal agent. Um, That's right. extremely intrusive questions that would be constitutionally prohibited in yeah. the course of normal law enforcement. Well, that's right. There's a, you could call it thickening of border controls outward and inward. Um, and that's, you know, that's where I would back off from, you know, just calling it a, a, a show or performance because, um, you know, f- frankly, in a fairly short period of time now, it created a true climate of fear um, in America for immigrant communities. Um, I mean, Trump has failed to um, build that big, beautiful wall, um, uh, which he wanted to do fairly quickly, um, but really has take, gone on the offensive in, in terms of interior enforcement. And that, frankly, is, is, is somewhat new. I mean, there were large numbers, people forget, the Obama administration actually significantly ramped up deportations, uh, millions uh, uh, of deportations. But f- frankly, if you were an unauthorized migrant going around your, about your business, family, a job, you know, law-abiding non-citizen, um, your chances of of being deported, you know, fairly s- slim. I mean, the amount of money put into interior enforcement, um, you know, in previous, uh, fairly small compared to the amount of money you see, you know, slated to the, to the border itself. Um, and so one thing Trump is, is, is ratcheting up is, is 
you know, if you just look at his budget that he's proposing, which isn't going to pass, but you just get a sense of he wants to hire a lot more, you know, ICE agents. Historically, what do you Hmm. see to be the relationship between the militarization of the border and increasing crackdowns primarily through the criminal justice, using the criminal justice system as sort of a force multiplier or proxy on undocumented immigrants already in the country beginning in the 1990s with uh, uh, the legislation signed by Bill Clinton in 96 making mm. facilitating the deportation of immigrants, including permanent residents convicted of crimes under Obama. There's the rollout of secure communities, right. which uses yep. local jails as the sort right. of entryway to, to deportation. And pri- um, privatization, too, of those jails, right. Yep. So w- w- what, what, what historically is the, the relationship that you see between border enforcement and interior, interior enforcement and the, the politics around them? Yeah, like I said, I mean, historically, the story's been the border. That's where the money's gone into. Um, that's what got the most political attention. That's where the, the image of disorder... Uh, has been that's where people on both sides of the political you know uh, across the aisle can agree on you know it's easy money politically to say we're for border security um, this other stuff is more complicated i mean what's what's sad about what's happened under the Obama administration is that my sense is that he thought by doing these domestic initiatives deporting you know, so-called criminal aliens and, and really getting serious about that. He thought he could get the Republicans to the table on an immigration reform deal. He thought, look, I'm going to show that we're tough on the kind of immigrants that, that we can all agree are a problem and that Republicans in particular think are, are terrible to have in the country. So I'm going to, you know, get serious about that. And then, okay, now let's have an immigration deal. And there's no immigration deal. Yeah, it's sort of r- remarkable that Obama missed uh, Mitch McConnell's memo issued at the very beginning of his presidency that their number one priority was to make Obama a one-term <laughs> Right, exactly. I mean, what's interesting is, you know, Trump himself, you know, one of the <laughs> most truthful lines of any of his debates with, with Hillary Clinton is he said, he actually said, I was paraphrasing, he says, people don't realize there have been a lot of deportations that the Obama, you know, has actually deported a lot of people. And he's right. Statistically, deportations, you know, were way up. Uh, What he was promising was a significant escalation from that. Um, One thing about your argument that I wanted to ask you about is you argue that the consequences of enforcement create situations and conditions that, such as uh, immigrants moving from major ports of entry into Arizona mm. um, that create, uh, that abet calls for further escalations right. in enforcement. But it seems to me that another thing that enforcement does is that it in and of itself abets calls for more enforcement potentially by drawing the very performance of border enforcement, by drawing people's attention Hmm. to the border and the idea of border insecurity. So, um, again, most Americans don't 
live anywhere near the Mexican border, have never seen it. Right. Um, you have um, anti-immigrant politicians and activists saying the border's out of control beginning in the, um, or not beginning in the early 1990s, but really increasingly in the 1990s. And border militarization is an attempt to, to sort of placate those voices and say, look, we have it under control. Right. And I think it does that effectively to some extent, but ironically and contradictorily at the same time, um, draws people's attention to to the border and reminds them that border insecurity is an issue. That sounds right. I, you know, I think it's what you're suggesting and what I argue are kind of complementary. It, it helps their case even more if migrant flows also you know, switch from California, Arizona, and then the Border Patrol could legitimately say, hey, we need more agents in Arizona. Look, we're swamped. Why are you swamped? Oh, we pushed them from California to Arizona. Uh, and so, oh, okay, we'll crack down Arizona and, and, you know, push them somewhere else. But basically that's, that's the built-in dynamic I was describing um, in the book. But the, what you just described, um, sure, there's also a... a built-in escalatory dynamic, plausibly, that is not dependent on what you're targeting to keep out actually necessarily always changing its behavior as well. I think that's what you're suggesting. Yeah, it, right. it, it's a hard, it's right. an argument I'm not sure that I can prove. It's more of an interpretive I mean, so, question. So, Maybe know, I could. For example, <laughs> um, the financial crisis, 2008, we can, you know, the, the, the flows of unauthorized migrants cross the border slowed to a trickle precisely because it's overwhelming an economic phenomena. And so no surprise at the financial crisis uh, and subsequent downturn um, in certain sectors of the economy, um, you know, hit demand for, and, and, and Mexico actually, uh, for various demographic reasons, uh, fertility reasons, um, its own economy, uh, the overall you know, more Mexicans going back to Mexico than coming into the United States, and yet this this escalatory dynamic has has still persisted despite uh, a pretty profound change in in Mexican migration itself. Um, looking back to the to the early '90s, I was wondering how you thought that this all fit into post post Cold War. American politics, mm. um, as you mentioned earlier, the first uh, wall or fence or whatever it was built near San Diego was made of um, metal sheets that the military had used as temporary landing right. strips. Yeah. Um, did drugs and migrants, in the sense, become this phantasmagoric third world army set to invade the U.S.? Was it a new evil empire for right. Americans who needed an enemy? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to, to overstate or oversimplify, but I think it's also at the same time fair to say that it's a bit of a paradigm shift, um, and it wasn't a complete shift, but, you know, the end of the Cold War basically uh, signaled the end of th thinking that an existential threat to the country was another state. Right, so it was, it was armies and and other countries' bombs and 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 bombers, uh, and suddenly it's a more murky, amorphous, non-state threats, of which at the time we're talking early '90s, 
you know, drugs, migrants, or a favorite term, like, you know, to a catch-all term, transnational crime, uh, to put a lot of stuff under that. Uh, and then what's interesting is it fast forward a decade to 9-11, and you just add transnational terrorism on top of that, another non-state uh, threat. Um, and so significantly ratcheted up the focus on unconventional uh, uh, security issues, um, focusing on non-state actors. Um, it's more scattered, more amorphous, uh, more never-ending. Traditional theories of deterrence and so on don't seem to apply. What you've actually built up your military to do, which is to deter other militaries and stuff, doesn't seem... So there's been a kind of Again, I don't want to overstate it, but a kind of retooling, if you will, of the of the apparatus, the national security apparatus, to and a kind of a blurring of the lines between what historically were thought of as law enforcement and policing issues to overlap with you know security issues and, and military issues. So, the intelligence community and and the military establishment doing more work that is kind of in the terrain of law enforcement, policing issues, you know, and uh, law enforcement actually in some ways getting militarized, policing, you know, uh, forces getting militarized part, some, in some ways by getting equipment, leftover equipment from, from the military. And so, again, I won't overstate it, but there has been this kind of blurring between traditional and non-traditional security issues and the apparatuses that go with them um, ever since the end of the Cold War, and it's accelerated significantly since 9-11, obviously. Yeah, and obviously what's happened since 9-11 has so many different facets, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy, right. from the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan to the fact that the U.S. military is currently engaged in conflicts in I'm actually, I don't think I can name right. the number of countries off the top of my head, um, to the longstanding drug interdiction efforts, to the massive expansion of the the NSA towards uh, surveillance, you know, and, surveillance right. and the increasing right. connection between local law enforcement surveillance efforts and the national security states. And the border after 9-11, even though at least the majority or a good number of the 9-11 hijackers came from Saudi Arabia, a country not touched by Muslim uh, by Trump's Muslim ban right. on visas. They certainly didn't cross the U.S.-Mexico border, right? So None of them even crossed from the U.S.-Canada border. Yeah. They came right. on flights. On totally, exactly. On visas. Right. So, so, so the border at the end of all of this, with all of these, all of these wars and expanding surveillance, is still sort of the remains a a go-to place for the government to perform its right. sovereignty. Right. Well, it's a source of anxiety, and it's a source where you can say you're going to do more to secure the country. It's a very concrete thing you can claim to do. Having said that, if you just look at the budget numbers, the amount of money put into Homeland Security, although it's astronomically higher than it was several decades ago, pales in comparison to the military campaigns in the Middle East, right? So I mean, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, these, you know, overshadow anything that we've done in terms of border security. Having said that, 
we're now seeing a trickling of you know drones used in 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 Iraq and so on now deployed uh, for border surveillance and and so on. So we've seen just like we saw a recycling of Cold War leftovers. Um, at the border, we've actually now starting to see some recycling of, of leftovers from recent military campaigns. Um, we've spent a bunch of time talking about a book that you wrote nearly two decades ago. Yes. <laughs> Even the updated edition in 2009 feels pretty dated at this point. Um, but as we've mentioned, uh, unfortunately, incredibly relevant, I think. Um, I've read it for the first time this year and definitely recommend that everyone pick it up. Um, but I want to end by asking you about your new book, um, which I unfortunately haven't had a chance to read yet, but I've read some of your writing about, uh, which is called uh, Rebel Mother. Your mother, when you were a child, hmm. took you to South America to search out the revolution. Right. Um, at some point, your father got custody and she kidnapped you. That's and right, yes took you back right. um, a a listener of to the podcast um, your brown political science colleague Alex Gorovich mm. sent me a message that he wanted uh, me to ask which is that he'd be interested to know if your interest in borders and militarization has any relation to the border crossing life that you wrote about in your recent memoir right. um, yeah it's a, it's a good question and, and I'm, I'm glad it's asked uh because it's actually the closest way of linking what we've been talking about to my most recent book, because otherwise they look like spectacularly different book projects, and why would we even be talking about them together? But, you know, if, as you'll see if you read the book, um, there's a lot of border crossings in that book, and uh, some of them are clandestine border crossings. Uh, I was indeed kidnapped. I was also used as a smuggler to, to smuggle... Uh, political propaganda out of Chile after the military coup in 1973. And I was used to, to by my mother to smuggle uh, large, um, large, uh, uh, you know, uh, amounts of, of U.S. dollars cash across the U.S.-Mexico border into Mexico as we were fleeing an arrest warrant for her arrest. Uh, she had just settled, uh, had a, a settlement agreement with my father where she got s some money from that. He won custody, but she decided to take me as well. And so she sewed pockets into my in, into uh, inside How my old jeans. Were you at this point? I was ten years old, and so, so as as you may know, going into Mexico, there's not a whole lot of border uh, border uh, checks. The last so. time I went, you punched a button, and whether it if right, it turned exactly. green, you could just walk yes, through. I don't even think that existed back in you know 1970. Uh, I've, I've never been stopped crossing the Mexico right, border. Right, exactly. Neither have I. Uh, not even looked at hardly. Um, so, but the point is, is that there was a lot of border crossings, some of them quite, uh, clandestine and uh, even some smuggling stories there. So it's, it's hard to imagine that my current professional interest in this stuff has absolutely nothing to do with my early childhood experiences, though it's hard to actually... Um, Say for sure. Certainly, an intensely political childhood had to have had something to do with the fact that I study politics today. Did it inculcate, have any role, despite uh, the fact that you are uh, clearly not raising your children uh, in this manner and have right. political differences with your mother, did it play a role in inculcating the sort of skepticism of authority that a focus on the drug war and borders oh, um, might entail? I'll have to think about that. Um, 
Yeah, I uh, certainly maybe uh, inculcate a kind of gravitate towards um, kind of a little edgier, unorthodox, non-traditional issues in, in, say, my field, political science. I mean, when I started getting into this in the early 90s, these are just topics that political scientists were not terribly interested in. Um, and for some graduate students at the time, I think it would have scared them off. It would have said, eh, this is too, too alternative, too peripheral, whatever. I'll, I'll study, you know, NAFTA instead of drugs, right? Um, but in my case, I was, it was, you know, motivated by my own intellectual interests, and it turned out to, to be a growth area. But not actually, it's interesting, there's still relatively um, uh, less attention, in, in, uh, certainly in political science, to these issues than one might imagine, given how much they're in the news all the time and how much policy activity there is around them. Peter Andreas, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Peter Andreas is a professor at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University and the author of the seminal book, Border Games, Policing the U.S.-Mexico Divide. More recently, he is the author of Rebel Mother, My Childhood Chasing the Revolution. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once reportedly said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by the great Alex Lewis. Music by the lovely Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever it is that you do get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, leave us a review. They really do help introduce us to new listeners, and that is a good thing. Also, please find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help.